This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Kurt and Travis celebrating 100 episodes. Hey, welcome back to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis. And Curtis here too. So we're doing this special centennial episode today for 100 episodes and seven months of interviews with great guests we've had over the the past months. Yeah, I was surprised, Travis, how fast 100 episodes went by. It's been a blast doing this. And you know what? I know that I have I've grown and changed a lot in my adventuring because of interviewing all these amazing people. How has it impacted you being a, a host for the podcast? Well, I think, you know, I, I always often say on my episodes, you know, it, it, it grows my bucket list of things to do. It kind of drives me crazy because I had a, a few items I wanted to do and you know, in the adventure world. And uh, now that I've talked to all these cool people, it, my list just keeps growing and growing and growing. I think I have three lifetimes worth of, of things I want to do before I'm done. Oh, I know. I'm having the same problem. There are a lot of things that I've discovered through the show talking to these people. I say, someday I've got to do that. But most of these people, they have one or two sports that they focus on. So we're getting spread a little thin. Yeah, I spread a little thin, but there's actually some things we haven't uh, we haven't even delved into. So it ought to be interesting. There's plenty of content coming up. Uh, I'm going to continue loving to do this, and uh, I assume you will too. Oh, yeah. 100 episodes is just getting started. But for you new listeners out there, we wanted you to hear some samples of the previous shows so that you could know what you might want to go back and listen to in its entirety. We have, believe it or not, 11 sound bites from 11 different shows that we're going to play for you. And I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, these are fun. Let's get right into it. So episode one was Pete Schuster. Um, Pete introduced me into through hiking. You know, this is the Continental Divide Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Appalachian Trail. And it was something I was aware of, but I wasn't wasn't a through hiker myself. I mean, did some mild backpacking. Um, but he really introduced the idea of through hiking and explained in good detail what it's all about. So let's check out this clip from Pete talking about his amazing experiences on the trail. So that's a heck of a journey to set out on. What was your ma- most amazing experience out there that uh, that you could tell our listeners? You know, something to kind of whet their appetite um, if they're thinking about something like this. Yeah, uh, I mean, most amazing thing. I mean, uh, I'll note a couple of things. Is one is that you know is everybody has a dream of doing something kind of big in their life. Everybody has to has a has a passion that you know, like God, I really wish I could do that. And so it sounds crazy, but like that first mile, the first mile that I was out there on the trail, it was really you know emotional it's just kind of like you know you spend all this time thinking about it you spend all this time planning about it you really dig deep and you're really actually disconnecting from your life you're pretty much saying no to everything and it's it was just such an amazing emotional beautiful exhilarating moment was that first mile to say you know what i'm i'm here i i, I didn't just talk about it i actually did it and so having that feeling and that emotion of all that preparation and mental preparation and the maps and the gear and saying goodbye to your family and, and hoping that you make it and all those things is just such a, 
exhilarating moment that it was really just really, really powerful in that first mile. I mean, I was like happy. I cried. I was excited. I was elated. I was freaking out. You know, it was, it, it was wonderful. So, I mean, that was, that was definitely an, at least an emotional experience for me. The other one, you know, was the people that I met. I mean, this country is full of wonderfully amazing people and you meet characters from, you know, a beautiful old couple that lives in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico, because they wanted to get off the grid to, you know, doctors and, you know, hunters who would invite you in Montana to come into their cabin. And, you know, they make a steak and potato and, and get you drunk on, you know, wild turkey, you know, and, you know, that was fun. And, you know, just being completely away from everything, from civilization that, you know, everything is on your back. Everything is there with you. You know, you encounter moose and bear and and deer of tons of deer and like little birds that you never heard sing and little insects on the ground you've never even known about before and you know you meet cool people and you know eventually you end up in a town you go to a bar and everybody's so welcoming they're like oh that's great that's fantastic let me buy you a beer and it's just like you know then the sun rises the sun sets i mean it's just it's it's unbelievably how freeing you feel and and how you can get away from those things that is just it's really overwhelming and then there's the cool you know when you have a bear or grizzly encounter that uh, you know you got to check your pants after that one too so those are uh, you know those animal encounters they're fun, they're fun too so Pete goes into hiking in the CDT and the experiences starting from south going north and in the various, uh, you know, elements of going into that. He really, he made it interesting enough to me that I definitely want to check this one off at some point in life. Yeah. And I love that, that discussion about his first mile, about all the different emotions that he felt that, you know, he had set this up as a, as kind of a life's dream and it took a lot of planning and a lot of work to get there. And then when he finally got started, it just it's kind of like a new beginning for people when they finally get to do some of their big dreams. And how lucky are we to get to eavesdrop in and hear people recounting these stories? Yeah, absolutely. So what do you have? Uh, the one I selected for the next little soundbite is Paul Shirky. He is uh, big into dog sledding and actually runs a business up in Minnesota out of out of Ely, Minnesota, where you can do dog sledding expeditions with him, which is cool. He even takes people into the Arctic Circle um, in the springtime each year, too. So, But this is a story about when he was first starting some of his longer dog sleds, and they were up on the Arctic Ocean. And it's just a really cool story about a dog, believe it or not. So let's give that one a listen. Will you tell us a story of an amazing experience that got you hooked on the sport? And take us there. Tell us what it felt like. Well, my first Arctic expedition um, was actually back in 1984. Well, we had set our sights on trying something big, really big. We were determined somehow, some way to put the parts and pieces together to actually dog sit from the north coast of North America all the way to the top of the world to North Pole. But to make that happen, we knew we had a whole lot of learning to do and a lot of gear to sift through. So we put together a plan for a, a, a sizable training expedition, which took us by dog came from Duluth, Minnesota, all the way across the continent, North America, to the northernmost village uh, in the USA, which is Barrow, Alaska. And to get there from Minnesota, <laughs> obliged us to undertake a 5,000-mile, five-month dog sled expedition in the winter of 84. 
Wow. But a huge chunk of that track, we, we dog-sided across the Canadian Barrens in the Central Arctic and reached the shores of the Arctic Ocean and the Beaufort Sea, and then worked our way down the coast of North America um, towards Alaska. But in 84, there was a curious uh, distraction along the way. It had to do with a little political intrigue back then in the 80s, which uh, concerned the Cold War. Of course, it was our kerfuffle with you know, the then-Soviet Union at the time. And given those concerns, uh, an odd spinoff of those decades of the Cold War was that every 100 miles along the 2,000-mile coastline of North America at our taxpayer expense, the U.S. had a listening post. These were called do-line stations, do meaning distant early warning system, DEW. And so every 100 miles along the entire coast of North America, some 60 of these listening posts were set up out there, little concrete bunkers with a radar dome on top and and six guys inside, they were working 24-7 uh, at the uh, computer screens, watching for that blip to suggest that the Soviets were winging their way across the Arctic Ocean to bomb us to smithereens. Well, of course, the blip on the screen never happened, um, uh, so it was a pretty lonely, uh, boring existence for the crews that manned these stations. But then we showed up. We showed up in the winter of 84, so every 100 miles along our dogshead route, we had the option to dip in for a hot cup of tea and in an attempt at conversation with some uh, uh, pretty strange guys. They'd been out there in the woods too long, out there in the Arctic too long, for sure, sitting in those bunkers. But one of the more curious uh, connections we've ever encountered in the Arctic took place there because at one of those stations, they had a mascot. They had a mascot, which was this uh, feral dog, wild dog that had shown up one day at the station months back, and they, it was too cagey, uh, too coy for them to handle, but the dog would show up every day at 6, like clockwork, when he could smell the sounds of dinner cooking in the little concrete bunkers, and then he would, the dog would patiently wait outside for his turn to leftovers. So we enjoyed carrying, uh, watching the same little routine while we stayed with him for a few days as well. The station, you know, the wild dog that they had called Sam, would show up out of the blowing snow in the mist at 6 o'clock every night to get his hand out, and then he'd dart off into the snow, and that was it. Well, as it happened, when we continued on the trail upon leaving that station, some miles down the pipe, we realized that that this wild dog was following us, and of course we felt bad, because we had unwittingly lured the station mascot away from these guys, and thought there was no, no rhyme or reason to it, no way to tell whether he was going to stick with us or, or head back, and so we pushed on, and um, as we pushed on, the days that followed, uh, Richard, one of our team members, made personal mission to try his luck each day at befriending this wild dog, so he would circle back behind the sleds on his skis and try to approach the dog and throw him bits of food and lure him ever closer, and he was making some progress, and then, uh, but the big day came when <clears throat> one day one of our wheel dogs, that's the dogs that are harnessed to the closest to the sled, um, one of our wheel dogs took a tumble and hurt its paw, so we cut him loose to stretch himself out for the day, so there was empty spot, spot on the team near, near the said, uh, as the day wore on, we watched in amazement as Sam, the wild dog, saddled ever closer to that sled, and then all of a sudden, bingo, he, he popped right into the empty spot. He was on a harness tongue clip, but he was running in position, and of course, that then and there told the story, because we knew that he was just a long-lost dog, probably from a trapper's team on the Yukon River. He was just looking for a place in a pack, and now he found it, so... Uh, Richard redoubled his efforts to befriend him and finally got a hold of him, flipped him into harness, clipped him on the sled. He pulled with abandon. He was a powerful sled dog. And then to add to the fun, um, the weeks that followed as we continued our way to Barrow, Alaska, 
Richard popped him into different spots in the sled from mm. position near the sled to swing positions up in the middle. And then one day, just for fun, he popped him into lead up in the front. And sure enough, he turned out to be a spot-on voice command lead dog. And he would wow. Off or right, on by, and, and on around, and he could do it all. And we steamed into Barrow, Alaska, a triumphant team on May 1st of that year with Sam and Lead. And then a few years later, we steamed into the North Pole after an epic two-month trek across the Arctic Ocean, again on May 1st, and that year being 1986. And on that day at the top of the world, Sam was in lead position. And then on a few years later, my colleague Will and a crew steamed into the South Pole. And believe it or not, on that day, once again, Sam was the lead dog, and on that day at the South Pole, Sam made canine history in a curious way because he then and there became the one and only dog who ever has or ever will be to both ends of the earth. So I love the part where you finally find out that the dog ended up being the first and probably the only dog to ever lead a sled team to the North and to the South Poles. And so cool that they found this dog in the middle of the Arctic and it was a, a dog without a home that they befriended. And uh, I don't know. I, it, adventure sports, I mean, dog sledding around the Arctic is the adventure, right? But we also have a lot of human interest and, and neat stories like that that come in from these people. And I really enjoy that part of the show. Yeah, it was a neat story. He, uh, the story reminds me of a book that needs to be written. You know, every, most of us know the story about Hachi, you know, and, and that dog. And it, Paul's story about this dog uh, just makes me think it needs to be written into a book and then a movie. It's a fun one. Yeah, it's pretty good. So what's next? So Alan Carl, if you guys remember Alan Carl, he's the one that just sold everything in his house and hopped on a motorcycle and rode around the world for three years. But the neat part about Alan's story is that as he went through every country, he got to sample the foods that he went th- uh, that he had it, for each country. So you know, in Canada it was poutine, and you know, mokeka down in uh, in South America, and. He ended up on this trip, he ended up uh, kind of um, cataloging these dishes from every country and ended up writing a book called Forks uh, to give the recipes and the story about uh, each one of these uh, these dishes. But one of the stories that stands out from Alan's interview was the story about the waterfowl. So I don't want to give it away, but Alan basically goes into a, a pretty hairy situation to take some photos of this really cool waterfall where he may not, you know, he probably shouldn't have been, but he tells a story about that whole thing. So let's listen in. In all of that travel, you must have a few amazing experiences. Do you have a couple that you'd like to tell the listeners about? Absolutely. You, you know, I, since we've been talking about all this fear, I have to tell you that I, I was at the early on of this journey uh, basing a bit of my decisions early on on fear, at least when I was planning in that two years of where do I go? There had been so much media about how dangerous Colombia, the country of Colombia, was. So in all my reading, I decided, well, when I got to Panama, instead of going to Colombia, I was just going to put me and my bike on a plane, fly over the country of Colombia and land in Ecuador and continue my, my South American journey from there. Right, right. But I rolled my bike onto this bridge, uh, the one that goes over this, the Panama Canal and takes you onward and uh, into Panama City and parts, as we like to say, unknown. Um, the I decided that I didn't sell everything I owned, pack up my bike to travel around the world. 
simply to go the safe route. I decided that in order to realize truly all that's possible with, you know, experiencing culture and possibilities and, and the peoples that I needed to, you know, face my fears and at the same time accept the risk and face the danger, uh, if there is any danger. And, and believe me, Colombia is a dangerous place, especially back then it was more so. Uh, things have really been um, improved there. So I changed the trip. Now, at this point, we, you know, I didn't have my spot. Nobody knew that I was going to be going to Colombia. So in Colombia, uh, after about two weeks of traveling through that country, uh, I'm finally headed towards Ecuador, and I'm headed towards the border. I get stopped by three policemen. Now, it's nothing I'd done before. You know, it's just a routine military police checkpoint. They've got dozens there. Except here they tell me I'm about to ride my bike through the most dangerous part of Colombia. They warn me, you know, this is where the FARC is. This is where the paramilitary hang out in the jungles. And they warn me not to stop. It's about four hours. They say drive straight through to the next town. Don't stop. <laughs> yeah, don't stop. So the road is rough and potholed at times and twists and turns, Travis. And, you know, it's like you're with every mile you're going, you know, the jungle is definitely getting thicker. Those mountains are towering even higher and uh, volcanoes and things, and the cliffs are, are steeper, and there's certainly no guardrails. And after about two hours of riding, I hadn't seen a single vehicle, so I go into this series of beautiful S-turns. The pavement had been nice. And uh, coming out of that last turn, that's when I saw it tumbling some 300 feet into the river, winding below. It has to be the most beautiful waterfall that I'd ever seen. And I know I'd been told and warned that I shouldn't stop, but I decide that I've got to get a picture. I'm a photographer, and I just love to take pictures. And I It was seen... put there just for you, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And I haven't seen anybody for two hours. That makes sense. Right? So, hell, I pull my bike over on the side of the road. Well, before I know it, before I even get my kickstand down, there are two men clad in jungle fatigues carrying automatic weapons on each Uh-oh. side of the bike. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, where the hell did they come from? Now, they march in front of the bike, and they just stand there holding their guns. And then they ask me those questions as travelers we get, you know, all the time. And then, <laughs> except he's got to wave his gun around as if it's a punctuation. Where are you going? Where are you been? You know, where'd you get the bike? And, the, you know, and the questions go on. And I'm at this point, you can't imagine, I am shaking. I am, I can't hardly breathe. I certainly can't swallow. My heart is beating so loud, I swear they can hear me. And uh, I lift open the visor of my helmet so that they can, you know, look into my eyes so I can look into theirs. And then I just kind of, you know, I'd learned some Spanish at this point. So I'm trying to come up with the words to describe, you know, this waterfall. And I just say, mira, mira, la cascada. And I'm pointing to the, you know, the waterfall. Mira, look, the waterfall, King Creible. And how incredible. Um so uh, the the other man kind of says to me, say, says, so you like waterfalls, do you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how do I take this? <laughs> he says, there's another one in the jungle a mile away. And he lifts his gun. He says, follow us. Oh, you, you go go to the waterfall, guys. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll stay I, here. Exactly. So so now, mind you, I am <laughs> I am standing on the side of the road. In perhaps the most dangerous part of Colombia, nobody really knows I'm here. I'm, I'm backed up on my blogging. Um, and uh, on one side of me is the motorcycle, of course. That's the way. It's my ticket to escape. But, you know, I'm thinking, okay, if I just say bye and get on it, are they going to shoot? 
And then I got two guys telling me I'm going into the jungle with them uh, with their guns. So I have to assess the situation, and I, I do, and I decide I really don't have a choice. i got to go in the jungle with them. So we cruise through the jungle, and it seems like an hour as I'm walking through, and I decide, okay, I lift the camera to take a picture of the guy in front of me marching. It's his back, but it's startled by the sound of the shutter. He turns around, he glares at me, point, you know, waving his finger like, no, 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 uh, in front of me. And, uh, and I think, okay, you're stupid, Alan, never to take a picture of a person with a gun in a foreign country. Even doing, like, taking a picture at an airport, Travis, in some remote country, you know, is often illegal. They could camp, confiscate your gun, your camera, you, they could, uh, put you in jail or who knows what else. Right. So what, what was going through your head? I mean, when you snapped the photo, were you not thinking at all or were, or were you thinking maybe this helps me connect a little bit on a human level or were you thinking I need to document something? So if I, you know, somebody <laughs> never finds me, if I'll, they ever I'll find the it. camera, uh, you know, that image is there. It's probably all of those things, Travis, to be honest with you. I, um, I, I, I tend to be, I'm, I mean, one of the things I like about motorcycles is that they're the greatest uh, metaphor for all of us for being open, exposed to the elements, being outside, alive. And I am a very open person. I, I, I treat life with a lot of levity. I don't take it too seriously. And I lift that camera and I thought, well, I'm marching in the jungle. This is, this, this is a, this is going to be a great story, you know? <laughs> There's nothing to lose. For really. somebody. <laughs> and, but at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm saying, if, something happens, I can, um, you know, they come searching for me. If everyone had figured that out, uh, you know, I could toss that, that camera and somebody eventually might find it and put two and two together. You know, that's a very little thing in the back of my mind, but my, sure. my true thing is like, take it. But then I realized that wasn't good. So he takes the camera from me and puts it around his neck. So I figured, okay, this isn't going well. I am now shaking more than anything. Um, Continue walking, which seems like for another hour, but finally we come to this clearing. It's probably, I don't know, it's not that big. It's just in the, in the jungle, but above, but above this clearing, above, there's a pool of water, clear crystal, you know, water. And above it, tumbling in three tiers is this, uh, is this waterfall. Oh, there really is a waterfall. That's really a is a waterfall. Sign. And I'm thinking, oh my God. Well, then the guy who's got my camera, he shifts his gun kind of so it's hanging behind him. And he starts taking pictures of me, of the jungle, of the waterfall. He even shoots it up at the trees. He takes pictures of his compadre, the uh, the other man. And then he hands the camera to the other guy and asks him to take a, a picture of the two of us wow. in front of the waterfall. Wow. And I'm thinking, whoa, I'm starting to realize, wait a minute, something's happening here. So this is where you will certainly call me crazy, as many of the listeners here on the podcast. But I look at the guy next to me, and I roll my eyes down and head nodding, looking at his gun. And I say, dude, that is a cool gun. Can I check it out? <laughs> Again, why not? Why not? <laughs> so, to lose. so to my surprise, he puts this gun in my hand. And he warns me that it's loaded and there is no safety. Which I guess there aren't on most automatic weapons, apparently, but I don't know. Um, so, of course, the guy with the camera has to take a picture of me with the, with the gun now. 
so at this point, you know, the water is rushing down into that pool from the waterfall. The birds are singing, the trees are shifting and the, you know, in the jungle, it's like, you know, it's just like all of a sudden this heavy weight is off of me. And, and I realized that at that moment, that just, mo- just moments ago, this guy and this gun could have been used to kill me in a single shot. And then I realized that, that my camera in the hands of the other guy probably cost me more than these guys will make in a year, both of them. Yeah, and, I'm and sure that's true. Yeah, and it's at that moment I truly realized the uh, the possibilities about connecting with people, humanity, and, you know, having that open experience, although with a lot of fear uh, going into it, and the fear mostly of the unknown. But I walked out of the jungle safe and with my gun. I mean, with my gun, not with my gun, with my gun. <laughs> <laughs> With your new gun, huh? I had no gun, let me tell you. No, I, with my camera. And... Um, you know, bid these guys good, you know, farewell, and uh, just a, a, a an amazing experience, one that pushed to both ends of my, can, you know, my emotions. Oh yeah, what a psychological trip that is! Just you know, in the course of whatever it was, an hour, just to walk into the woods, thinking I'm probably not coming out of the woods. You know, to you go back and see a beautiful waterfall and take a few pictures with your brand new friends and. And man, what a, I mean, what an amazing experience that is that, you know, to, uh, to be scared to hell to be in the beginning, but realize that you were able to establish this connection with these strangers, uh, and, and walk out a friendship. That's cool. Yeah. 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 Really, really, uh, real powerful moment. You know, it's at that moment I, I realized, and I say this a lot, this is kind of one of my, um, realizations, lessons learned is that even though I went out on that journey, you know, this motorcycle adventure around the world alone, I'm never really alone for it's always possible to connect even, you know, with anyone, anywhere, even in the most dangerous part of, of, uh, of Colombia, connect with people and humanity. Well, and it's neat that it happened in Colombia. I mean, Colombia is certainly a far way away, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things in your whole trip, that was fairly early in the trip. So that probably really helped in setting you up and eliminating that fear and realizing that, you know, this is pretty much a worst case scenario that I just (laughs) walked into. This is what I would imagine would happen if, you know, if people were telling me I was going to die and you managed to walk out of it. Yeah, it was probably some pretty cool pictures of the of the guys that you went in with. So yeah, yeah, exactly. It's 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 it's, it's a good point. Uh, early, pretty much made me. Uh, it 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 didn't make me feel invincible, but it made me realize of that power of connection, the human connection, right. and yeah. Well, and you really, I mean, I think you, you did make that human connection. And I think, you know, by lifting your visor, making eye, t- eye contact and, and talking with the guys instead of just fleeing off. I mean, they may have just chuckled, you know, the, the silly gringo took off and, <laughs> you know, it would have a great story, but you made a human connection with them. And these guys probably tell that story quite often themselves, I would bet. Yeah, the crazy gringo. That's right. <laughs> oh, very cool. Very cool. So yeah, that's a crazy story. I mean, this guy, you know, people were told him, you're not supposed to, uh, to go back into this area. If you go through, just keep on writing. Don't stop. And what's Alan do? He stops, you know, of course he's, he's, he's too intrigued on this trip to, to not go back and take pictures. So it's interesting. He gets, uh, gets back with these guys and the, the whole thing really turns out just fine. And what an amazing story he gets to take with him. Yeah, that was an amazing story. A little bit scary actually to think of what could have been. 
but it all turned out great. You know, something else about the book forks, my family has decided uh, once a week to cook one of the dishes and to read from the book as a way of just doing some geography with the kids. We're having a blast with it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Good for you. All right, what's next? Next is Jerry Roach, and I wanted to make sure that Jerry Roach was in on the centennial episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast because he did so much to bring adventure to the world. And the reason I say that, if those uh, of you that may not know, Jerry Roach wrote the Colorado 14ers books. He wrote um, several other guidebooks on how to climb high mountains and he saved probably thousands of lives because his books have helped people to find routes and to know how to safely climb. But Jerry climbed over 2,000 peaks. He's still climbing. And uh, he was in the mountaineering adventure world a long time before most people. And so I wanted everyone to get to hear just a little bit out of Jerry Roach. And he wrote 15 books about his life's pursuits. So there's a lot there if our listeners want to dig into it. Well, Jerry, will you take a few minutes to tell us more about yourself and your connection to your mountaineering? Like Gert said, I moved to Boulder under the Flatirons in 1954. I was a 6th grade, 7th grade coming along. And one of the answers to the famous white climb question was there, staring me in the face every day when I was out in the schoolyard. It was the Flatirons. And I looked up, and frankly, it was just instinct. Never mind all the fancy answers. Yes, the flat irons had to be there. I did have to see them. But it was instinct, and I just wondered if I could climb them. So off we went, me and a school buddy. No equipment, no training, no knowledge. The only thing we knew about climbing was what we had seen in a cartoon where some crazy cartoon figure had a rope dangling freely into space and another person yelling crazy things, and there was a pick and a hammer attached to the cartoon figure. That's all we knew about climbing. You needed a rope, <laughs> you needed a pick, and you needed a hammer. We had no idea what to do with any of those things. So we stole our parents' clothesline, which was cotton in those days, later tested at about 60 pounds. Oh, no. <laughs> and we borrowed a claw hammer from my dad's tool chest. We didn't have a pick thing, so we forgot about that part. And we went up to the flat irons with no training. It's amazing that we survived those initial encounters with real rock, plenty steep enough to kill kill you. That's not how I recommend starting. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, there are a lot of, of uh, backpacking, wilderness, and even emergency and survival skills that people need to learn before they take off on these uh, big mountains. And so I agree. It's worthwhile. People need to get experience. Start small, work your way up. It's all fun. And so there's there's nothing wasted in, in learning those basic skills first. Absolutely. Climbing today is centralized. Everyone wants to do Long's Peak, Mount Rainier, Denali, Everest. Stop. They're not <laughs> to move on to some other sport. Well, it's not that easy. Uh, I didn't. I did a much longer version of that, decades in the making, different era, yes. I didn't have the money, yes. But uh, fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. I did Everest back in the days when we really had to climb the mountain. I take some pride in having led a portion of every part of the route, base camp to summit. These days, people clip in. I'm told, 
hard have a hard time believing this when I'm told there's fixed rope from base camp to the summit. Wow. Seven miles of rope. And the clients don't lead a step. The Sherpas lead everything, fix the anchors, fix the ropes, cook the meals, all of that, carry the loads. My goodness, it's changed. I've been to Everest in, initially in 76 and again in 83 when I made the tippy top. Both of those trips, we had the climbers had to lead the route, do much, if not most, of the fixing. We carried our own stuff. We pitched our own tents. We cooked our own meals. I love the story when he starts out there, Travis, where he's talking about um, as a kid, like 11 years old, I believe he said, climbing the flat irons with one of his buddies and using some clothesline and a claw hammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we don't do such smart things when we're we're young kids. But, I mean, talk about the epitome of adventure and growing up with that that drive for adventure at such a young age. You may not be making the best uh, decisions when you're out there, but to carry that drive for adventure throughout life is an amazing thing. You know, I have to say I really related to that story because before I had my ropes training and had any ropes, a buddy and I were hiking around the flat irons. Same thing. The the undergrowth got really thick, and I thought, well, let's just get out on the rock a little bit. And then we started getting, you know how as you climb, the handholds go one way. Well, we ended up climbing the entire first flat iron with no ropes or anything, and we should not have done it, but it's just kind of where we ended up, and it sounds like Jerry Roach did something very similar. Yeah, yeah. I think we hear that story quite often in our in our interviews. <laughs> so what's up next? So Craig Kennedy is a balloon pilot, and the neat thing about his story is that on the Adventure Sports podcast, it, to me, adventure sports don't always have to include death-defying feats. You don't have to be diving off of cliffs or wingsuiting or jumping out of airplanes or you know hiking the uh, in Antarctica you know for months or or on a trail for thousands of miles. Adventure can be simply going up in a hot air balloon and just experiencing what it is around you and below you and just being up there in the sky. So Craig Kennedy does a really good job of describing the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta and the Dawn Patrol. Dawn Patrol is uh, when all the balloons line up and they're choreographed and take off before the sun rises down there. We've all seen the pictures. And I think he just does a really good job uh, describing that and uh, painting the picture for us. So let's check it out. I have a fascination with hot air balloons. I was really excited to get you on to have you explain them to me and describe it for our listeners. I was on before we had our interview. I was telling you about this and I was looking at some YouTube time lapse videos of the uh, Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta. And I, I man enough to admit that I was actually kind of emotional watching this video because it was just it was a dark sky it's before the sun has come up and these balloons are gently lifting off and they're lighting up against the dark background with the flames in them. And it was just this, this awe inspiring image of all of these balloons going off. They're like very large Chinese lanterns floating up into the sky. It was so cool to see that. And I'm, it's on my bucket list officially as of today to get down there and see that. So can you describe that better than I have to our listeners and what that whole 
uh, event is all about. You are speaking of the opening uh, moments of the Balloon Fiesta, which is always held the first week of October every year in Albuquerque. And it begins with the Dawn Patrol show. Now, my dad was a participant in the roughly 1980 range um, where he was introduced into ballooning. And a group of California pilots thought, hey, wouldn't it be neat to go out in the desert and fly balloons in the dark? Well, some of these guys were doing this not just at sunrise or after sunset. They were doing it 9, 10 o'clock at night in a full moon. So they were able to convince the FAA that with the proper position night lighting, and we're talking about some blinking lights below the basket, uh, that it would be safe for balloons to fly in the dark. Fast forward several years to the Albuquerque Balloon Fiesta. My dad was involved in this uh, with several other pilots, and it was born, but it was not an official on-the-field event. Well, I believe it was 1995, and the event director at Fiesta, Pat Brake, asked if I would help coordinate a Dawn Patrol show like was still being done in Reno by the California uh, group. And I said, sure, why not? I asked Dad, hey, you want to help me do this? He says, son, honestly, coming to the, uh, uh, that town on the right week is my idea of choreography, but go for it. <laughs> and I asked a few friends, and we had seven balloons the first year. We have had as many as 25 balloons up in the dark. And we put together a script, and of course the music. And it's a, it's a pre-dawn ballet in the sky, and it begins with the balloons, with the music dramatically inflating, and then all standing up, adding the flame, making the balloons... Uh, all stand up at once, the introductions are made, the passengers are boarded, and then one by one from both ends of a long line that stretches all the way across a 150-acre park, these balloons start launching. And then we start communicating, all on the same radio frequency, all on the public address system, and we call our own show from the sky, and we tell the guests on the ground, stand by, we're going to make the balloons burn at the same time. And we light our burners. And you're right, like Chinese lanterns, away we glow. That is awesome. Yeah, I would say if somebody out there hasn't seen the videos of this, jump on to YouTube and type in the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta and specifically Dawn Patrol, and check this thing out. It is amazing. Um, I want to hop on the motorcycle and get down there in October. I want to witness it for myself, for sure. Travis, you or any of your listeners, if you get a chance to just experience a balloon flight wherever you are, and certainly in Phoenix with Hot Air Expeditions, uh, contact us You know, at hotairexpeditions.com if you're going to be in this beautiful Valley of the Sun and request the special flights. Uh, look for the opportunity. Do something different. Uh, yeah. as, as far as a Dawn Patrol flight, it is the e-ticket ride. I, it's not really sold uh, hardly anywhere, and uh, so few people get to do it, but it's almost like two flights in one because, for example, in Albuquerque, the mountain is to the east, so it's blocking the sunrise. So you get in the air and you go high 
and you're enjoying the carpet of lights below you. You can see the cityscape. You can see the long, long lines of people who didn't get up early enough to be on the field for the launch yet. And you're knowing that, you know, you're enjoying the very best part of the flying day, the beautiful air. And you go higher and higher. Well, now you're seeing the sunrise over the Sandias. Well, guess what? You can let the balloon cool off and come down lower. And now you wait for the sun to rise on you again. So, yeah, after talking to Craig about this, um, I definitely put this one on my bucket list. I think it would be so cool to go down and experience uh, this thing. I mean, there are more than 600 balloons in this Fiesta every year now. So imagine if you haven't been there, 600 lit up, you know, massive Chinese lanterns, you know, as I described them, just floating off into the sky all at the same time. It's got to be a phenomenal way or a phenomenal thing to witness. Oh, yeah, that would be a blast. We went to the Hot Air Balloon Festival in uh, Steamboat Springs several years ago, and I have to say, when you're in a place like that around those balloons, it is so exciting. It is so neat. So um, one thing that we always try to do is bring in guests that can give us approachable adventures, adventures that people can try to get started, you know, if they want to have an adventure sport of their own. I think this is a great example. Yeah, absolutely. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bent Gate is here to help. Bent Gate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bent Gate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bent Gate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. Well, the next one is not so approachable. This is perhaps the most extreme story we brought to you today. It's from Tim Emmett, who is a professional climber and base jumper. And uh, Tim tells a story about stand-up paddleboarding down uh, a river, down the rapids of the river, to get to a climb. And then doing this climb, and things didn't go quite the way they expected, and 
Then they do a base jump and things again didn't go quite the way that he expected. But Tim is a is a amazing guest that we've had on, and some of you may heard recently that he he's running some ads with us um, about his professional speaking. So, anyway, it's just a great story. I wanted to throw it in there. Tell us about a time that something did not go right and how you managed. Yeah, well, a couple of years ago. I was wondering which story I should tell you here because I've got quite a few. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, I went to this place in the Northwest Territories called the Vampire Spires. And the Vampire Spires, as you might expect, are these like teeth like, like uh, granite spires. Um, but I knew that no one had ever base jumped there before. And what the plan was was to try and access these spires by um, unconventional methods. And... That method was to go stand up paddleboarding down a river called the Little Nahani. And to give you an idea of what that entails, um, the Little Nahani, is, it's got uh, um, rapids up to class four. And it's completely out in the wilderness. It's a 10 hour drive from um, um, Whitehorse to get there. And the nearest town's about five, well, it's a village, is about five hours drive away from where we got dropped off. Uh, so we, had these paddleboards to try and go 240 kilometers down the river. Wow. (laughs) That's a long way. To then gain access to these vampire spires that we wanted to climb up and then wingsuit fly off the top. So it was quite a, you know, it was definitely a big challenge and an ambitious project. But um, we managed to get down the river okay. Like the first part of the river, like the first section of rapids were 18 kilometers long. And it took us 10 hours to do the first portion of this river, which had never been stand-up paddleboarded before. And we had, like, you know, buoyancy aids, wetsuits, we had gloves and boots on, and then we had, like, loads of mountain bike body armor, which was, um, I'm so glad we had it. Because the thing with going down a river on a paddleboard is that if the, if, especially from the source of a river, quite often there's a lot of, there's low water in it, there's a lot of rocks. And with a stand-up paddleboard, you have fins on the back, and when your fin hits a rock, it, it, it stops the board. And because you're standing up, like it's really easy to just knock you off balance and you fall in. And then you have to try and get back on the board. And the time between falling off and getting back on the board, you tend to go down like a pinball in a pinball machine, you know, <laughs> sure. and you're like bouncing these rocks trying to get back on your board again. So, um, once you, we got down into, into, uh, deeper water then you know it it wasn't so much of an issue bouncing off these rocks but we managed to get down the river and we we then got made our way up to the vampire spires we climbed this route and we got to the top of this climb and the plan was to try and find a place that would be suitable to wingsuit fly so you've got you know you put your wingsuit on and then you you need a vertical wall that's about 800 feet high to give you enough time and space for the wingsuit to inflate and then you can start to fly away from the wall and fly down a valley or you know fly down to your landing area but the thing was is that um we were climbing in a team of four and one of the guys had um a, a recent shoulder injury and he hadn't been climbing very much and we were also climbing with our base rigs which are quite heavy to be honest they're about eight kilos with your base rig and your wingsuit 
So it took us a bit longer to get to the top of this spire than we originally anticipated. But because we were there in the, in the summer, you know, it, it only gets dark for a few hours, like three or four hours in the, in the, between sort of midnight and, and three or four o'clock in the morning. We got to the top and it was 11 o'clock at night. So it was just starting to get dark. And one thing that I'd learned over the years of looking for new exit points with a wingsuit or when you're base jumping is that it's absolutely essential that you don't rush it. Like if you, you need to make sure that you know exactly whether it's, it's on or not, you know, whether you're going to be okay if you jump off this wall, because, you know, you can't second guess it. Um, you know, it, it's just the consequence of, of making a mistake is way too high. So we got there at 11 o'clock and it was starting to get dark. And we, we decided that we'd be much better off if we spent the night on top of this spire. And we waited until the morning so that we had more light and we wouldn't be in a rush to evaluate whether it was jumpable or not. So we did do that. And um, But the thing is, we didn't have a sleeping bag or anything like that. We were, really weren't planning to spend the night up there. And it was pretty chilly and there were four of us. And um, I ended up sleeping in my wingsuit and... The thing is, you know, you, sharing bodily warmth is definitely the way forward because, uh, you know, you're just way warmer and you might get some sleep if you're huddled up really close to your, your friend. And there's like four guys <laughs> lying there, you know, and, you know, maybe to start off in the night, you just got your hands, you got your hands beside yourself and, you know, you sort of try not to move, you know, because you've got a lot of body contact, contact with your, with your friend. But then <laughs> you don't want to get slapped. As the, as the night gets colder, you're basically just getting as close to each other as you can and you're just wrapping yourselves around each other and, you know, shivering, basically, trying to stay warm. Um, and the two people in the middle who have got people on both sides get a bit of sleep, but the two people on the outside that are next to a cold rock, they're not sleeping because it's just, you know, it's too unpleasant. So uh, anyway, we, we waited until it got light and, uh, you know, had our wingsuits on already and all we had to do was just put a base rig on and, and, and then jump off and I don't know about you I mean after a, a poor night's sleep I definitely like to have an espresso or a coffee or maybe a <laughs> bit of breakfast or you know something to warm yourself up but all we had to warm ourselves up was to like jump into the unknown and it's going from it's like going from naught to 120 in like one second you know, where you like, you wake up and then you get in a racing car and you have to drive as fast as you can down the road. You know, the, the transition from one to the other is, was quite um, dramatic. So we ended up, you know, we, we got ready um, and we evaluated that it was, it was safe to jump, but it was a bit lower than we anticipated. And we knew that, but we still decided that it was okay. It was, you know, it was a really technical jump in the respect that it wasn't that high. And the landing area was quite a long way away and it was very small. So we had to execute the jump perfectly to be able to get to the landing area. We had to do a, a 90 degree turn on the left hand side as well to get the right angle to then make the landing area too. Um, and we both jumped off and we flew and my flight went really well right up until the point when I pulled my parachute and then... I had this parachute malfunction where my my um, my lines ended up rotating and twisting around. Yikes! So I was flying backwards, and well, the canopy was flying in the right direction towards the landing area, but I was facing in the other direction, and I only had about ten seconds to organise this twist so that I could then land in exactly the right spot. Um, but it wasn't long enough. 
like 10 seconds wasn't long enough to be able to organize this. And, you know, I needed like 20 or, or 25 seconds. And my friend landed safely um, on the side and I ended up crash landing into this field where it's like a boulder field, actually. And it was really scary. Like it was um, it was the first time in my base career where I've not been in control of what's going to happen mm. next. And I didn't like it that much. It was it shook me up a little bit and I was about to become a dad and. You know, I was, um, it was, it was, I got away with it. You know, I could have got really badly injured, but I didn't. I got a puncture wound in my shoulder and I also, you know, got a, a, a twisted ankle. But, it, you know, looking at the bigger picture, I was okay. And going, you know, looking back at it, I, what I realized was, was that in my base jumping and wingsuit career, I'd set myself these parameters that I was going to stay within to make it safe. Because it's, you know, I'm sure many of you out there think about base jumping and wingsuit flying as something that's like really, really high risk. I mean, in fact, if you look at adventure sports, it's the number one, it is the most dangerous sport that you can do out there, um, according to national statistics. So um, I thought that, you know, the way, if I was going to do this sport, I was going to do it in a way that I would stick, adhere to these particular rules and therefore I'd make it safer than perhaps it would be if I didn't do that um, but what I'd realized was that I was breaking those rules myself and I was actually pushing I was pushing it um, and this particular jump was a combination of all sorts of different factors all of which were being pushed to the red line um, and as a result you know something happened and uh, you know I nearly had a really bad accident but I got got away with it so what I learned from that is that, you know, there's, there's taking risk and there's getting a reward from it. But I think sometimes the, you really have to draw the line as to when to say no. So that one was perhaps one of the more extreme stories that we've had on the show. And uh, not everybody would want to take up base jumping and, and that kind of thing. But Tim does just such a delightful job of telling us what it would be like to go through an experience like that. Had to throw it in. So do you have a sport for us, Travis? Yeah, so through hiking, we already talked about Pete Schuster, but we have Liz Thomas on as well. In fact, we've had Liz Thomas on twice. The neat thing about through hiking is it's just – it's approachable. Um Hiking ends up being our most listened to episodes because I think people can relate to it. So they say, man, I, I would really like to get out there. And yeah, I would like to retire and take three months on the trail, you know, or five or six months for some of us. Um, but Liz does a great job in talking about through hiking. She's an amazing woman. I mean, she holds the women's unsupported speed record for hiking the Appalachian Trail. She has the triple, tri she has the triple crown, which means she's hiked all three uh, trails, the, uh, CDT, the AT and the PT. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's over 10,000 miles of actually hiking. And so Liz is back on to tell us about why she would encourage people to try through hiking. Well, um, you know, one thing about through hiking that I really appreciate is getting to see the world, getting to see how things are connected. So, for example, hiking on the Appalachian Trail and walking all the way to Maine, I was able to experience kind of how the cultures change very slowly as you head north. Um, you get to really interact with people 
in a way that a lot of uh, travel wouldn't otherwise do. And, uh, oh, the big thunder. And, <laughs> and you get to, uh, <laughs> you get to see how everything is connected. And when you come back, you have this idea of, you know, it's not just a me, me, me world. There's other people, there's other ways of living, there's co- different, completely different points of view than, than what you had before you came into the hike. So I think in, in that way, you can go into the rest of your life a little more compassionate towards people, towards the environment than when you started your hike. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think that carries over to the urban through hiking, like you're saying. It really, it really can be an eye opener. Um, you know, we perceive the world one way, but things are never as we perceive it. We get out there in the open and experience the real world and it really opens our eyes to what really goes on and how people really are. And I think you find that you get the best out of people when you're out there one-on-one with them like that instead of just making our assumptions. For sure. And my favorite thing about any long-distance trail is it's a great leveler. You know, the way that our society is set up, the way that a lot of our communities are set up, you don't get to interact with people from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic classes. You're on the trail, everyone you meet is wearing the same sort of gear, same sort of stinks coming off of them. <laughs> We're all hungry. We've all been up the same hill. And, man, I've had friends from, from all walks of life, and I can't think of any other experience in you know the real world where you get to just meet people from everywhere and share stories and really have that camaraderie. I think that's really one of the great pieces of magic of, of long distance hiking. Right. Yeah. You make it, it uh, sounds alluring hearing you describe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It sounds like it. You know, one of the neat things about the through hikers is they all have their trail names and Liz got her trail name um, of snorkel by having a, an equipment failure and finding out why she needed the, uh, the snorkel for her sleeping bag. She does a great job at telling us all about through hiking. I appreciate her time that she's given us. Yeah, and when she was on the second time, we did a deep dive. So she gave a lot of details about how to actually do a through hike, how to get your pack light enough, some of the strategies for putting in that many miles and staying in good shape to do it. So really a great resource, and I really enjoy listening to her stories about it. I tell you what, just something about being on the trail, just watching the – the forest or the mountains or the desert go by at a pace where you can really soak it up. But man, it's good for the soul. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cycling is kind of like that. So, you know, it's an approachable thing. You don't have to have a bunch of expensive equipment. So I think your next uh, clip involves cycling, right? Yeah, that's right. We have Willie Weir. Willie Weir has biked over 60,000 miles all over the planet. And the story that we have here is how he got started biking. He's quick to say, though, that he likes to say, and I think I even mentioned this in the in the clip, he likes to say that he is a traveler who found biking rather than a biker who found travel. And that's kind of cool. He just loves the bicycle as his preferred mode for seeing the world. that happened earlier on in my life that kept coming back in my mind was that when I was 19 years old, I bicycled across the country 
with my best buddy Tomas. We uh, did the old part of the bicentennial route, which is now the Adventure Cycling Association, but their route went from west to east coast, and we could only afford the first section of their maps, and so we kind of uh, realized we were going to have to wing it after, uh, after the western states. And, you know, two and a half magical months later, and I have to say that I had no, there was doubt in my mind on whether I could actually do this. And, you know, two and a half magical months later, we found ourselves cycling down 2nd Avenue in New York City. And my life would never be the same. Um, I really thought that that was going to be the only trip I ever took. I can, you know, I thought I'd be, you know, in, in my 80s telling my kids, you know, while I was in my motor home somewhere, uh, you know, this trip I did once on a bicycle. But when the travel bug hit again, uh, and I thought about backpacking, and I thought about, you know, being on a train or, you know, motorcycle, whatever, I had to be honest with myself and to realize what had made that trip so incredible was the vehicle I was using. And over the years, I have discovered, you know, for me, it's, the bicycle is one of the last forms of innocent transportation. There is something about a bicycle that allows you to experience the world like you can't in many other ways. And part of that is that the bicycle has this innocence about it that allows people, and you're also vulnerable when you're on a bicycle. Uh, and that can be a negative, but the positive is, is that when you're vulnerable, people are willing to be vulnerable with you. My wife and I cycled for uh, three months, uh, two, I mean, two and a half months in Colombia and the rest of the time in, in Venezuela. Um, and I know so many people who have cycled and they're on the Pan American Highway because they're doing that big trip. Now, the Pan American right. Highway is like the Interstate 5 of of you know South America and we cycled on that road for one half of one day and my wife said just get me the hell off this highway major trucks no shoulders on the road it was horrible but this was the road that people were pedaling on to stay safe because that's what they've been told we were there in 2008 that point when Colombia was just kind of opening up and as far as travel and I mean as general travel we decided to cycle uh, Colombia and Venezuela had bought tickets to Bogota, round trip tickets, and then started looking up information and talking to travelers. And I always tell people, if you're going to travel internationally, just for God's sake, don't go to the State Department's website because it is just a fear factory. That thing will make you afraid to go anywhere other than the United <laughs> States because, of course, they're sure. not going to tell you about murders and whatever here. You know, somebody gets shot in Guatemala City and they put a black mark over, you know, it's like, well, boy, they, they don't use the same, you know, yardstick on themselves. So, and, and don't, uh, don't listen to people who all of a sudden say, you know, I had a friend whose hairdresser's brother had an acquaintance who was blah, 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 and, and I'd never go there. I mean, it's the first thing when people start talking to you about a destination you're thinking about going, ask them this, have you been there? And if they haven't been there, you know, end, end of conversation because people are just going to spout what they've heard on television or whatever. Uh, talk to other travelers. And we talked to other travelers about Colombia, and we found out they said, okay, Colombia is safe to travel in, but you have to be on the main highway. You have to be on the main road. That was kind of depressing. In fact, it was kind of the first trip that I really wasn't looking forward to now that I had this information, but we had non-refundable round-trip tickets. Three days before we left, I got an email from somebody. Now, I've 
I started writing commentaries for public radio, uh, the station in Seattle from India, and had done commentaries for every trip since then. And so I uh, had several trips under my belt and lots of commentaries on the air. And, and this woman emailed me, and I didn't recognize the email address. She goes, you know, you don't know me, but I've been listening to you on the radio for years. And I have a friend. I went to, I went to school with him, and he's a really interesting guy, and you might want to meet him. And his name is Enrique Peñalosa. And I thought to myself, the Enrique. Now, this is this is the equivalent of somebody saying, you know, I have a friend, and he's a cyclist, and blah blah. And you may, you know, like to meet him. His name is Lance Armstrong. I mean, uh, <laughs> Enrique Peñalosa in a bicycle advocacy world. Um, this is a former mayor of Bogota, which used to be one of the most dangerous cities on the planet to uh, to to uh, live in. And he and other mayors prior to him transform that city and anybody in the bicycle advocacy movement has heard of ciclovia ciclovia happens in bogota every single sunday from 7 a.m to 2 p.m and holidays and they close down 120 kilometers of major arterials in the city of bogota a city of nine million people Wow. And 30% of the population of that city participate in Ciclovia every single week. Two million people. Now go around the world, and if you've been to major cities of five million plus, you realize they're pressure cookers. They're traffic and pollution and tension and whatever. And, and, and as we get a chance to meet Enrique and, and hear what this event really was, because he said, you know, this isn't necessarily just about exercise. This is, this is about people. This is about equity because, you know, if you talk to people who live in the city, they will tell you that they love Bogota and you immediately know that, you know, prior that they had a helicopter or whatever where they left the city and went to their, their island or mountain retreat. He goes, but what about the rest of the people? What about people who don't have the money to leave the city? That is what this event is. And we had the chance to ride in Ciclovia. And it is one of the most moving experiences I've ever had is to have one part of one day every single week where you own the city and people on bikes and, and, and skateboards and walking. Man, if you want to teach your kid to ride a bicycle in Bogota, you do it on Sunday morning because, man, there's a four-lane road out there and it doesn't have any cars or buses or whatever on it. And it's throughout, you know, throughout the city, 120 kilometers. So we had the chance oh, to meet Enrique and we're there with this, in this meeting and I really thought he was going to just talk about Ciclovia, but the first thing he did is he said, show me your map. Where are you going to go? And so I kind of, uh, I took it out because I was a little embarrassed. And I, I looked, and I, I basically put my finger along the route, which was the main highway, because we figured our, our journey in Colombia was only going to be about two and a half weeks from what we'd talked to, and literally talked about dozens of people. And I showed him, I put my finger over that route, and he looked at me and he said, this isn't my country. This is the truck route. He goes, do you want to see my country? I mean, really see it? And we said, well, yes. And he goes, okay. And he, t and he looked up and he started 
tracing these routes. Within 20 minutes, he'd probably traced out about two years' worth of cycling we could have done in Colombia. And he'd say, like, okay, see this road here? This road goes up in the mountain. Oh, you're going to have to walk your bicycle, but oh, it is so worth it there. And then you have to cross over in this area here. He goes, you know, you're probably going to meet FARC here, the gorillas. He goes, but you know what? You're two Americans on bicycles. They won't know what to do with you. Okay, so, and, um, <laughs> Just you know, go on, we had on. already had dozens of people tell us, okay, main highways, that is it. I mean, 100% of the people that we had talked or, or emailed or whatever had given us that information. And one person told us, no, no, leave that main highway and see my country. And you know what? If it wasn't Enrique Peñalosa, who I already just you know, idolized in a lot of ways, and my wife had some of the same feelings, we left, we left that meeting and realized that that's exactly what we were going to do. And we ended up calling it. In fact, the, the feature that I wrote for Venture Cyclist magazine was called Enrique's Colombia, because what happened is that on a bicycle, if you're on a, you know, if you're on a racing bicycle, you can ride from Bogota to Medellin in about three days. And it took us two and a half weeks because when you're on the little roads, they follow the drainages of the rivers and sure. you know, you're in the mountains. And so we probably where the main highway probably climbed 11,000 feet. We probably climbed 90,000 feet on dirt roads. And there were times when we came into one of the first mountain villages we came into had sandbags and a machine gun behind. And the guys were like, what are you doing here? And we said, well, Enrique sent us. And we were treated so incredibly well. Remember one morning we were at a, at a truck stop because, you know, truckers, they know where to eat. And stopped in there having um, breakfast. And this man came up to us, found out where we were from, saw our bicycles. And he looked and he said, Thank you so much for taking the time to see my country. And then he left. And we finished breakfast and walked up to pay and found out that he paid for our breakfast. And that happened oh, more nice. than once. The people, they're so proud of their country, which had been so trashed in the media for so long. Um, but then again, those, those off-beaten places. You know, Willie is also a motivational speaker, and I really enjoy listening to his stories. He just really knocks it out of the park, and uh, he's contributed so much to the sport of bike touring. And so, Willie, if you hear this show, I just want to say thanks for all that you've done for the sport. Yeah, I mean, over 60,000 miles of pedaling a bike, that is insanity. I mean, my longest ride on a bike was two days, 150 miles. I can't even fathom 60,000 miles of pedaling a bicycle. I know, and even in the places like he just mentioned in Colombia, going to the backwoods parts of Colombia, and they just had a delightful time. And I think one of the things that Willie really believes is that the bicycle, because you're vulnerable, it, it makes you more approachable by others and... It's just neat, good humanitarian stuff. Yeah, very cool. So I've got a clip from George Coronas. Now, adventure includes some crazy things like spelunking and rappelling and whatnot. And George resides in Canada but spends his life, literally his life, traveling around the world looking for the craziest weather phenomena and the craziest places to, to venture into. So – I had George on uh, to talk about some of these uh, storm chasing experiences and, and going down into volcanoes. Um, you know, volcanoes, he's, he's witnessed the Dolomites and Timbuktu. He's been out with the gorillas in Rwanda. I mean, he's been all over the place. But one of the coolest stories he had 
was about these crystal caves down in Mexico. Some miners uh, opened up uh, these caverns and discovered these massive, you know, 20-ton crystals or whatever they were. Um, George was one of the few people to actually get down and go witness and explore these caverns before they closed them back up. So let's listen into his story. The one time that I was the most filled with awe, like jaw-dropping awe, was on a caving expedition that I did a few years ago in Mexico. There's a place called Nica, and it was only recently discovered. There's a silver mine in north-central Mexico, and they were ni- there were miners that were 900 feet underground, and they accidentally broke into a chamber. This chamber was about the size of a basketball court, and it was filled with the largest crystals that anyone has ever seen, these white selenite gypsum crystals. Some of them were 30 feet long and weigh 55 tons. Wow. Totally like something out of a science fiction movie, like like Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And I just Google Nika, N-A-I-C-A, and you will be blown away by this place. And... So I had the opportunity to go there. It's very tightly controlled. It took two years to get permission to go there for one day. And the environment inside the cave is as deadly as the cave is beautiful. The air temperature inside is about 126 degrees Fahrenheit with almost 100% humidity. Wow. So as soon as you walk inside the cave, the humidity hits you in the face like a sledgehammer. And... It, it, you literally start dying because your body cannot shed your internal heat because the air is hotter than your skin. So you're absorbing heat. Plus the humidity is so high that you sweat, but it doesn't evaporate. So that natural evaporative cooling effect that your body has doesn't function. So you're basically about to get heat stroke. And without any kind of special clothing, you can survive inside for 15 or 20 minutes. We had special ice-filled suits with a special backpack filled with ice canisters uh, that went up to through a hose to a fighter pilot-style mask that allowed me to breathe chilled air and blew sort of chilled air onto my eyes to keep my eyes from getting scorched. Holy cow. Yeah. And even with all this gear, I could still only go inside for about 35 to 40 minutes at a time before all the ice melted. And then we'd have to leave, take everything off, put them into freezers and uh, just all this preparation. You're totally drained. So you drink about a gallon of Mexican tap water <laughs> and then, then you go back inside for another 40 minutes, uh, about an hour and a half later, once you've rested a little bit and two years of preparation to go in there for one day. And it was totally worth it. It was just the most beautiful place. Just this, this chamber of gigantic, Gigantic crystals that are so big, they're like tree trunks, and you're climbing over top of them. Amazing. Yeah, I saw those. You guys did an Angry Planet episode on those, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, those are amazing. Remember, it's funny because I remember the very the very first time I ever saw a photograph of that place. It was given to me by a caving friend who showed it to me out in Alberta one time years ago. And the millisecond that I saw the first photograph, I knew that I was going to go there. I didn't know how, I didn't know when, but I knew that it was going to happen. And it just took years and years and years of perseverance, but it it did happen, and it was amazing. 
Well, it sounds like it was absolutely worth it. Completely. It's uh, it's interesting because the place is sealed off completely now. You can't even go in there as a researcher or a filmmaker. And the cave itself is below the water table. They actually have gigantic pumps that they use to pump water, the groundwater, out of the uh, out of the mine. Um, and at some point, the mine is going to run out of silver. We don't know when, but at some point, all mines run you know run out of ore. When they do. At some point, they'll end up shutting off the pumps, and the cave and the whole mine will flood with uh, with water, and we'll never see it again. So, yeah, what an amazing opportunity! There's only a few people that have been able to to go down in these caverns, and uh, you know, some pictures on his site would just tell the story. If you're listening in, just go check that out and uh, and see these these crystals. They're so cool. George also uh, hosts a TV series called Angry Planet. You can check out and see all of its adventures, but. And it's uh, he was a neat guy to talk to for sure. You know, there have been all these books written and, and movies made about journeys to the center of the earth and that sort of thing. And it's it's so mysterious to think about what might be down there that we have no clue about and that humans somehow tapped into this cavern is amazing. <laughs> I just if you haven't seen the pictures of this, people, you got to go look. What oh, an amazing place. Well, I watched this guy even swim the piranhas. It was a piranha pond. I forget where he was specifically, but he uh, he jumped into a piranha pond just to prove that you wouldn't get eaten up. But you could see it on his face. He wasn't quite 100% convinced it wasn't going to happen. You know? But <laughs> he goes and swims the piranhas and comes back out and shows you that they're they're not really after you unless, you know, you taunt them. <laughs> That's great. We had another adventurer on of a little bit different sort. Robin Benincasa was an adventure racing champion. She ended up doing the Eco Challenge and was on a team that won Eco Challenge competitions all over the globe. So probably, as she says, probably the best team that ever existed for this type of adventure racing, which what we're talking about here are nine or ten day races where you're you're rappelling, you're paddling, you are often um, rock climbing and, and traveling through jungle, and they have to do it all um, with their own self-navigation and they have to do it as a team. And they go, I, I kid you not, Travis, she said in the interview, we found out that if you don't sleep 90 minutes a day, then you lose your scruples. So we realized we had to get at least 90 minutes of sleep. And they do this for nine or ten days nonstop. That's insane. Hmm. In some of your motivational speaking that I heard online, you told a story about when you were on one of the adventure races and your team captain, you're getting ready to run, and the team captain says, okay, everyone, into your packs. Mm-hmm. And it was that that kind of teamwork. Explain what that was about for us. Well, it was sort of the the first time that, well, that I was I was aware of. You know, it was the first time I raced with the best team in the world, but um Right before the start line, our, our team captain basically kind of said, you know what, everyone's carrying their own mandatory gear, but I have a, a different idea of the way we're going to work this. And he started taking some of the weight from from some of the, the slower runners, myself included, You know, started taking some of the weight, like our climbing gear, our extra shoes, anything like that, and, and giving it to the two stronger runners. And it was kind of the first time I was aware of of people not just carrying their own individual gear and and kind of doing the the commonly understood version of teamwork, which is walking side by side towards a common goal. He had a whole different idea of the way we were gonna we were gonna do this, 
And he basically took the bulk of the weight, handed it to the two strongest runners. And, and I was just standing there with a water bottle. And, you know, we weren't really sure how this was going to work, but it, it turns out that it was absolutely, uh, you know, a stroke of genius because it wasn't just, you know, a world where everyone just looked out for themselves. He was kind of saying, well, now we're all responsible and accountable for getting each other across the finish line. And, and in that world where you're caring about the three or four other people around you almost as much as you care about your own performance – I mean, it's amazing because whereas every other team had one person caring about their each of their own success, on our team we had five people caring about five people's success and looking out for each other. And when someone was struggling, we'd take more of their weight. Or if someone was strong, um, we discovered a cool way to make a little toe line, like a little a little. Um, one of my teammates cut a piece of bungee cord off the netting in the back of his backpack and tied it to the bottom of his backpack and made a little tail. So there was like a bungee cord tail off the bottom of his backpack so that if someone was struggling, instead of stopping to, to swap out weight, the person struggling the most could just grab onto the tow line and, and be pulled along with the strongest person. And, you know, throughout the entire race, we kept doing that over and over, shifting weight, tow lines, encouraging each other. Um, and and we discovered really, you know, in, in that race and in, in that kind of year-ish um, you know, the importance of not just being a bunch of world-class individuals who very often didn't get to a finish line regardless of their talents. It We realized that, yeah, you got to be a strong athlete, but the most important thing is to be a strong teammate and to have the entire team, you know, there not just with each other but for each other. And just that tweak in thinking um, is what made us, world-class adventure racers for years and years and years after that. Um, we were never the best athletes. We were all in our 40s and 50s, and we were, came from all over the world, and, and we never even trained together. But it was really just that mindset of, of I'm going to take care of this person next to me. I'm going to care about them as much as I care about myself. Um, that, that changed everything and got us through every challenge and got us through every low point. And I mean, there, there was almost nothing that could keep us from crossing a finish line in, in at the top of the pack. I mean, maybe not first, but, you know, kind of in the top five because we slowed down less than any other team did. I mean, all the other teams had to wait for their slowest or most broken person. And we just took ours with us. Take us to a race, a memory that you have that really impacted you, something that made you say, you know what, <laughs> I love this and I want to keep doing it. Can you tell us a story? I don't know whether I was loving it at the time. <laughs> There's a few. <laughs> there was a, well, my first race with the best team in the world who at the, at the time were called um, Eco Internet. Um, it was a, a big race, the Raid Galois in Ecuador, and it was kind of the, the main big game in town. And it was the first time that they ever had an adventure race go to uh, a huge mountain peak. And on day three, after running for 75 miles, starting at 14,000 feet elevation, we had to summit a 19,700 foot volcano active volcano so we had to go to almost 20,000 feet after minimal sleep three days into a race and we were just all an absolute disaster as you can imagine and um, we all looked pretty terrible coming into the hut at 15,000 feet where you started the climb and we were at the front of the race with the French 
And I was just a, a, a total train wreck. I was asthmatic and I was blue and I couldn't breathe. And, mm. and, you know, it was just such a, it, my, I mean, I was, I was falling apart. Um, just my lungs and my oxygen and, and, um, I just was like, I, I can't, I can't go any higher. I mean, I had a fever. It turned out I had 102 temperature when they took my temperature later. I mean, I was just a, a mess. And, um, so in the race, the, we looked so bad at the front of the race that, you know, the, the top two teams look so awful three days in at, at, that they, they changed the rules of the sport right then and there to say, you know what, all five of your teammates don't have to get to the top. As long as three people get to the top, you can continue. Because up until this point in adventure racing, if one person wasn't able to complete the race, your whole entire team was disqualified, which are the, still the rules that stand today. But they made an exception because it was an out and back to kind of say, well, you can leave somebody here at the hut, but you're going to have a five-hour penalty. Wow. Or take somebody halfway up to 18,000 feet, and if they need to come back down, you're you're going to have a two-hour penalty. So they, they kind of threw in some strategy at this point. But the one thing that they said is we, you guys all look so bad that we actually need to have some kind of baseline about – you know, your level of your, your capability to climb any higher than 15 right now. So they took out an oxygen saturation device, an O2 set. And, um, and right there, they made a rule at 1am as we were about to go out the hut, which was the first, you know, gate that was open for climbing. And it was just the two teams that were in the hut. And they said, you know, you have to have an oxygen saturation of 71% or more to continue. And, you know, being a, a firefighter EMT, I know that, you know, when someone has an O2 set that's like 92 or less, we're taking them to the hospital with lights and sirens. So, you know, it was it, it was crazy on their part to even say 71. So both teams are leaving the hut at 1 a.m. to start the, the summit. And everyone's O2 set is, is a mess, like early 90s, late 80s, mid 80s. And then I put my finger in the O2 set and it said 71%. Oh, yeah. So now it was confirmed by everyone that I was certainly not fit to keep climbing. And, you know, much less, I didn't even know if I could keep living where I was standing at that point. <laughs> and um, and so I looked at my teammates and, and, you know, of course, I didn't want to get the five hour penalty, even though I'm dying. I was still competitive. So I, I said, well, Hey guys, you know, we're going to be strapped up for glacier travel anyway. Maybe you guys can just drag me to 18,000 feet. So we only have the two hour penalty. <laughs> oh no. And so, and so they said, okay. So we got rigged up for, you know, glacier travel, which everyone had to be anyway. But I rem you don't, don't remember much of those next several hours because it was sideways hail. It was dark. I had a huge fever. I couldn't breathe. And they were literally dragging me up this mountain. God bless them. And so. At 18,000 feet, I thought I was going to go back down. It was the sun had just come up and, and everyone's sort of milling around at this checkpoint. And I'm thinking about how I'm going to get down. And this was sort of the moment that kind of changed my, my whole career. I mean, at this point, I was thinking I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be racing with the best team in the world. I, they shouldn't have picked me. It was a mistake. I'm not good enough. And I'm in the snow and I'm like crying and eating my cookie and I'm wondering how I'm going to get back down. And my friend Robert Nagel came over. He was team captain and he uh, put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you ready to go, Rob? And I said, I, I don't know how I'm going to get down, Robert. And he said, oh, no one's told you yet. Like, what do you mean no one's told me yet? What's what's happening? 
he said, well, the doctor at the checkpoint is saying that John, who is John Howard, um, another of the, like the greats of the greats, amazing man. Um, he said, the doctor's telling John Howard and I that we have high altitude pulmonary edema. Oh no. And he's telling us we have to go down said. So the only way for us to stay in the race is if you go up. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, talk about a complete mental turnaround, you know, and, and he looked right at me and he said, you can do it, Rob, you can do this. And because he believed, I believed. Like I, I was like, well, if the best guy in the sport believes, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe I can do this. And the man, like, like in that moment, like literally changed my whole life, like my whole perspective of myself, my whole um, being. Like you actually see in, in the video at that point that I stand up and I start nodding my head. Yes, yes. Like just all the nonverbal cues was that I was I was going up and I believed that I could do it. And and uh, he and John went back down and we got the four hours of penalties and and myself and the other two guys went up and summited it at 19,000, you know, 700 feet. Um, still just ahead of the just ahead of the French. And um, it, it, it was just kind of the reason that I bring up that story is it just shows you the the power of the mind and the power of great leadership. You know, when someone really believes in you that much, you know, believes in you so much that they convince you, you know, that, that you can do this. And when they give you that, um, that challenge and that respect to say, you know what, the best people in the sport aren't going to be able to pull this off. It's up to you now. And, and when you allow someone to rise to the occasion like that, um, just the power of that. And, and, Literally in that moment, I went from being kind of a, a a girl from sea level who didn't even think I was going to make it through the day, much less through the race and, and win the race, um, you know, and that I didn't belong there. Suddenly I started thinking like, I, I belong here. This is my team. These, you know, this is this is the level in the sport at which I belong. And it happened like literally over a span of 30 seconds. Mm, um, what a and, transformation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, amazing. And we went on to, I mean, obviously it was, it was nine days for the win that race, like literally nine days for the win. And, um, and we finished just a couple hours ahead of the French. Wow. So Robin is a motivational speaker as well and has written some books. And one of the things I really like that she's doing right now is Project Athena, where she takes people, primarily women who are recovering from medical challenges, sometimes it's cancer or other things, and she gives them a reason to get back into shape and to get back with life and living life large. And so this foundation that she set up takes these women out on crazy epic adventures, things that maybe they never did before their illness and they do these things to to reclaim their lives. And wow, it's just so inspiring. It's a great show. Yeah, inspiring is a key word there. I think, you know, one of our goals of this podcast is in, to inspire people to get out there. Obviously, we say it all the time. And when you listen to Robin Benacasa, the the word that comes to mind is inspiration. She's a, an inspirational speaker. Her stories are, are amazing and make you want to get out there and try the same things, I think. 
Yeah, and, and you know something else that's kind of unique to her that I don't think the clip brought out is that she ended up with uh, multiple hip replacement surgeries because of arthritis. And so she took up paddling because she could do that even with the challenged hips, and she set all kinds of world records for paddling. So she's one of these people who says, oh, no, I'm not going to stop. I'll just shift. I'll do something else then. That's right. (laughs) So our last clip that we have for this uh, centennial episode is a guy that I truly, and I mean this when I say it, I want to find a way to meet up with him, have a beer, and hear the rest of his stories because he's got so many of them, and he's such a good storyteller. He has a sense of humor. I just love listening to him. This is Peter Bray. Peter Bray is uh, from Cornwall, England. He was in the British Special Forces. He was a military diver. But this guy has done so much. I mean, we're going to talk about him uh, rowing across the ocean with some team members. But he's a skier, uh, adventure racer, cyclist, marathoner, microlight pilot, climber, motorcyclist, and more. But He's got just the most amazing experiences uh, to share with us. And on one of these days, I want to sit down and, and get the rest of them. So to lead into this uh, clip, it, Peter's rowing. He's trying to set a record for rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, it, things don't quite go right with him as, as it often happens with our stories. So let's uh, listen in and see what happened. <laughs> So you were part of a four-man team as well that, that rode across the Atlantic, and you had a bit of a run-in with a hurricane. Can you tell that story? I think that's a that's an amazing one. Yes, that was Pink Lady, and um, I'm ex-military, as you've already said, and special forces, so there was a lot of hiding on my side because I was not going to wear anything pink. I'm just <laughs> man, not pink. doesn't do me. The boat was sprayed pink everything we set off um we were doing really well we're 39 days we're into making the record from newfoundland to the sillies with bishop's rock where it would end we're underneath southern islands so we think we're nearly there uh we had a weather forecast chappy from america and he was brilliant and he was telling us the weather giving us all of it but about a week before this happened he said, there's a hurricane coming up, but don't worry, it's not going to affect you guys. The next time we spoke to him, the hurricane's coming up, you'll be okay. The hurricane's coming up, you may get a bit of rough water. Hurricane's coming, it's going to get bouncy chaps. And then the next one was, I think you want to batten down, the hurricane's going to hit you. It's coming oh, for yeah. you. So we prepared the boat. We got myself and Mark in the bow. John and Jonathan in the stern. We all had our immersion suits on. We chucked the line out the back with floats just in case anybody got knocked off. Not that we were going to go outside, but we'd have a line to grab all the pull ourselves in. We got the grab bag sorted, positioned in its place. We called the Coast Guard um, and said, look, this is our Latin long. We're on the sea anchor. Hurricane's hitting us. They went, no problem. You've told us where you are. We'll put it out the ship in blah, blah, blah. Um, and three o'clock in the morning, Mark said, should we swap places? Cause him and I were in a little tight place as we're doing it. The boat rolled and I, are we upside down? He says, I think so. We'd planned to be upside down. No, we didn't plan, but we knew what to do if we were upside down. So we opened the hatch and the water just gushed in, um, pitch black three o'clock on a Sunday morning, Sunday hurricane. See, she doesn't like me. 
Mike went out. I couldn't see which way he went. I went out, went to the right. The drill was we'd go to the dagger boards and we'd write the boat. We'd practice this. It worked every time. So I get to the dagger board and I look and it's like, I thought we had a straight boat. Why have we got an L-shaped boat? Oh, no. And it was literally in half held together with the safety line that went back and forth of the boat. So it was then start shouting, Mark, where are you? He's on the other side. So we had to find John and Jonathan. Uh, heard, Jonathan heard Jonathan and he disappeared. Found him, went, so I had to dive down a little bit, grab him, pull him up. And it's amazing when you're in that situation, you're really calm. So you don't scream and shout at him. Go, How come you went down, Jonathan? Yeah. I done done me zip because it was too hot. You're a bit of a plonker. He's a Tide reporter. Very <laughs> posh. He was the fashion guru on the ship. I'm ex-squaddy, scruffy. So there was a lot of banter. He was going to educate me. So got his zip done up. Got him round to Mike. Said, Mike, hold on to him. Got to find John. Eventually found John. John had a bang on his head, so he was semi-concussed. But there. Got him. And I said, right, we've got to get the life raft. So I thought, that's my job. So went back. Had to dive down. Get back into the uh, the hatch cabin that we were in. Unscrew the screws, which was easy enough to um, get the life raft which wanted to float, try and hold it down, get it out, bring it up, give that to Mike. Mike, you can deal with this side. I'll go back, dive back down, got the grab bag, came back up. Life raft was up. We got Jonathan in it. We'd lost John. They're going, get in. I said, I can't get in because the last thing John's wife said was, don't come back without him. If I don't find him, she's going to shout at me. So swam around a little bit, and he was holding on to the EPIRB. Um, got him, got him in the life raft, and you have to imagine a life raft with four guys in it. One hypothermic going down, one semi-cast and one in shock. <laughs> I'm just laughing, thinking, oh, poo. Um, we got on the radio, told the Coast Guard what were happening. They sent out uh, Nimrod, and everything would be controlled by the Nimrod. They told shipping, all this. Meanwhile, Jonathan's going down, he's got to get something on his head and I, I needed to go to the toilet so I got the bailer and I'm doing the business and I'm looking at Jonathan, I'm looking at the bailer, looking at the side of the hat uh, where we chuck the lo- business out revenge is sweet isn't it, all the black <laughs> I took off him about my dress and all this, I thought I'm going to have fun so Emptied the bailer out and went, Jonathan, I've got just the thing for your head, mate. It'll keep (laughs) Put it on his head. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's hilarious. We then got a call. The Nimrod was above. Would we put a flare out? So that was my job because I was the only one sort of able to stand up. So I'm stood outside with a shamuli and I hear this voice. Don't do it over the raft. Shut up. Land it. Waiting, the pilot's going, now, now, now. And I hit the flare. Uh, we went to see him afterwards to thank him. And he said the flare went straight up in front of his nose. So we knew exactly where we were. Holy cow. I'm a good shot. Yeah, I guess so. In fact, I couldn't see anything. I was just going by sound. Uh, then they got the, told us there was a super tanker coming. And 
the funny part of it all was we were sponsored by Pink Lady Apples. And I always say to people when they're telling me things, I said, what do you think? I come in a banana boat. <laughs> right. It was a banana boat that was rescuing us. <laughs> so I can't use that saying now. That's funny. So they got the the rope across with the old gun tied off to the life raft, pulled the life raft into the super tanker. Uh, at the gauge, the waves, we got the worst guy off, which was Jonathan. I got him off first. Excuse me. Got John off second, got Mark off third. All I had to do was get off, and that was it. Left the life. Just as I went to make the jump, the wave disappeared. The life raft fell down. I hit the side of the tanker, got dragged along, holding with one hand. I just burst out laughing. I thought, I've been in this situation before when I was serving. Um, managed to get myself up on the top. And the guy said, are you okay? I said, yeah. He said, all we heard was laughing. I said, it's a long story. You don't want to know. <laughs> so, yeah, can you imagine a group of guys, rough and tough guys, some British military, and they're rowing across the ocean in a pink boat. <laughs> so pink boat capsizes and uh, splits in half, and they're having to rescue each other and, and get themselves out of the drink. But can you imagine the frigid waters that they were floating around in until they got picked up? I mean, I just I, – I can't even fathom the idea of sitting in that kind of water for that period of time. Man, I have a respect for people that can get out on the water like that and uh, it just – it's so big and uh, it's so easy to be lost out there for a long, long time. And yeah, that that's impressive stuff. <laughs> well, I'm sure it takes a certain mental stability to uh, to pull that one off. Yeah, no well, doubt. So we don't want to take anything away from any of our guests. All of our guests have been truly amazing. It was really hard for Kurt and I to pick the the 11 clips that we wanted to share with you guys. But we hope that all of our guests have had as much fun recording this, uh, this podcast with us as we have. Um, we can't wait to see what the next 100 interviews will bring. And uh, we can't wait for you guys to, to hang on board with us and, and listen in. You know, we picked these 11 because we thought they'd be great, but not necessarily because they're the best or our favorites. Um, I think they're all so good. So there are 100 episodes now to dip into and uh, be encouraged and learn about all kinds of different adventure sports. And listeners out there, thank you for listening. And please tell all of your friends and don't hesitate to grab these old episodes because they're just all awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And help us out. Go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, leave reviews for us. It only helps spread the word about the podcast. We want everybody to be able to hear this. Share the episodes with your friends. Just help us get the word out. It's been a lot of fun for us. We hope that you're enjoying it too. So hang in there and uh, we'll be back doing another episode for 200 to recap the next 200. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one too. All right, so this is Travis and Kurt. We're going to sign off. Uh, you guys, take care. Thanks for listening. And as always, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>